Welcome to Trap Talks. My name is Sushant. I am an e-commerce entrepreneur and each week we bring an inspiring entrepreneur or business person from e-commerce, retail or tech industries to help you discover how to start and grow your own e-commerce business. Thanks for spending some time with me today and let's get started. Hey there entrepreneurs, my name is Sushant and welcome to Trep Talks. Today I'm really excited to welcome Chris Devonshire Ellis to the show. Chris is the founder, founding partner of Dezon Shera and Associates. They are an Asia-focused consulting practice with specializations in law, tax, compliance, and related issues for foreign investors, mainly from United States and Europe, who wish to trade with, sell to, or start up businesses in Asia. And today I'm going to ask Chris a few questions about his entrepreneurial journey and how his business provides value to its clients. So Chris, thank you so much for joining me today at Trip Talks. Really, really appreciate your time and looking forward to speaking with you. So, uh, you. so I did a little bit of a research on you uh, online and you have a very interesting story. You kind of selected or you kind of bet on the Asian markets almost 30 years ago. You started your business almost 30 years ago. Uh, so can you share a little bit about your entrepreneurial story? What motivated you to start uh, your entrepreneurial journey? And specifically in Asia, you know, because 30 years ago, I think not many people would have kind of guessed that, you know, China would be, uh, or Asia would be, you know, the kind of uh, power or, or, you know, the kind of growth that uh, Asia is having right now. So what kind of motivated you to go to Asia? Well, um, well, first of all, uh, one of the reasons I set up my company is because uh, I kept getting fired from my previous jobs. Um, so I have the, the only way out of this solution of being such a terrible employee was, was to set up my own company. Um, but before that, um, my first job actually uh, was, um, uh, uh, I was a yacht broker in, uh, in Greece. Uh, I spent four years uh, there. So my first job was actually as an expat. Now, selling yachts uh, and brokering uh, vessels is a bit different uh, in Europe and Greece than it is in Asia. But having had that very early experience, um, being uh, overseas didn't really faze me. I'd already made that uh, jump. And I do remember way, way back in those days, um, getting on that plane to Greece and thinking, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe this is a terrible mistake. I should stay in the UK and not do this. But I'd already got on the plane, so it was too late. Um, so I overcame that initial fear uh, very early on in my life. Um, so those four years I spent in Greece were actually um, were actually very helpful when it came for my time to um, look elsewhere. Now, uh, when I, when that job finished, um, the um, I found it very difficult to settle um, back in uh, Europe. I thought that I I probably knew better than my bosses did, which wasn't very helpful when you're trying to have a career. Trust yeah. me. Um, so um, I didn't get on. I found it hard to settle. I kept on getting fired. I tried many different things. Um, and eventually I just got fed up with this. And um, 
uh, I, I'd been to China, I'd been to Hong Kong on, on holiday. I had friends there, and um, I decided that I would go to. Uh, I decided I would go to Hong Kong. The handover was still several years ago and um, away, uh, and I felt that that was going to be an interesting experience to to go through that uh, and see the uh, uh, the party like it's nineteen ninety seven vibe, uh, which it really was in those days. I, I got a a job initially as a commodities broker, something again, completely new. Um, and uh, really Hong Kong was in full on, this is the end of an era party mode. Um, mm. uh, so uh, so that was a lot of fun. And uh, again, a great introduction to, to Asia, although I had been there on holiday. Um, I then um, uh, worked for a company called Asia Law and Practice. Um, their publishers are now part of Euromoney. Uh, and that got me uh, back into the uh, back into the legal uh, services industry. And I then worked for a couple of law firms uh, and I started taking trips to mainland China, which was still a fairly uh, unusual thing to do in those days. People were kind of, you know, afraid. Uh, and when I when it came to me, I thought there was a, a gap in the services industry in uh, in China. Uh, there was still um, apprehension in the West, particularly about what would happen. Um, when I told my boss at um, uh, Asia Law and Practice that I was going to leave and set up my own consulting practice in China, he said, Chris, don't go. It's dirty. It's horrible. Nothing works. And they'll rip you off. And you know what? He was right. But <laughs> none of it to a critical degree. Um, so... Um, so he he was right, but my gut feeling that I could make something happen there, uh, and that there was a gap in the market was correct. So there's a lesson there actually for entrepreneurs: if what you think is right, and if you think that you've got the right idea, the right concept, then that means that probably is right, and don't be put off by other people telling you otherwise. So I didn't take my boss's advice. I went to mainland China, set up a firm. Uh, and uh, yes, it was difficult. Uh, and now, 32 years later, uh, that firm, which started basically with just me uh, trying to set up um, foreign companies and representing them in terms of the contracts and various other uh, things in China, has grown from me. And then uh, I employed two girls from Sichuan to help. Um, now we have several hundred employees uh, right across Asia. Um, and uh, over 40 offices. This is our 32nd year of operations, and we've grown from, I think my first year's turnover was about forty or $50,000, mm. and now um, it's um, it's about forty or $50 million, uh, so quite a big, uh, quite a big growth there. Um, so we've, we've grown. Uh, we've always been a, a small, now perhaps we're a small to medium enterprise, uh, but yeah, we've we've had to do it all on our own, and um, it's been it's been a great journey. So so from you know fifty k to fifty million, uh, that's uh, that's basically what uh, what uh, what the journey's been. I mean, it, it seems like you're you know you you made a bet um, based on your gut intuition, and and that bet kind of um, paid off. You know, it's like. Uh, um, yeah, well, I, I I did do my research. I mean, China was China was interesting. It was it was opening up, and I I was based in Hong Kong at the time, so I I, I took trips there. I mm. went to Shanghai, for example. You know, it's uh, 
it's an evocative city and always was. I mean, back in the day, in the 20s and 30s, it was uh, it was a rock and roll place, you know. Um, when I went in the um, in the uh, uh, late 1980s, early 1990s, it was a huge city that had just kind of fallen asleep. Mm. Um, but I could sense that there were going to be a lot of changes, uh, and um, I was right. When I was when I was in Shanghai, it's a big city. I think then it was about um, you know five or six million people, and uh, now it's probably a, a, about twenty. But everyone, you know, coming out of Hong Kong, and there's taxis and Rolls Royces and everything there. And in Shanghai, you know, and, and actually a larger city, uh, the um, everyone was uh, was on bicycles, and I felt that this this is crazy. This this is not sustainable. Uh, and sure enough, within a few years. Those people were riding bicycles. They graduated to uh, little scooters and motorbikes, and then cars, and 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 so the whole thing just kind of uh, exploded. And uh, I was there at the right time, um, mm. but uh, it wasn't it wasn't purely by luck. I did do my homework. I did go and see and feel. Uh, and I here I think my experience back in Greece helped because it didn't really phase me being in a foreign country, uh, mm. learning the language. Uh, didn't phase me. Um, in fact, I had to because hardly anyone in China spoke English. Mm. I, I bought myself a little Berlitz guide um, and uh, a, a little a little notepad. And here's a lesson for people interested in Chinese. I didn't bother with all the tones. You know, there's a lot of different tones the way you say different words. Um, I didn't bother with that because even if you get it wrong, the Chinese, if you've got the right word, the Chinese will still know what you're saying. They'll put it into context. And in any event, there's no, not really any such thing as fluent Chinese, to be frank. It's a huge country uh, mm. with many, many, many regional dialects. So mm. they're used to having words mispronounced um, in slightly different ways. So I just ignored the tones, which a lot of people in the West, you've got to learn the tones, got to learn the tones. I, I didn't bother with that. I just learned the words. And that's meant that I could really expand my vocabulary quite quickly instead of concentrating on something which was perhaps a little bit more superfluous. So the issue with Chinese is that there's no, as a language, there's no correlation to any of the European languages. The European languages are all kind of in, mm. interrelated with each other, French, German, uh, uh, Latin, uh, mm. Greek, so on and so forth. But in China, coming from Europe, every word is a new word. So I concentrated on on that rather than the tones and let the Chinese work out what it was I was uh, trying to say. And in most cases, generally um, generally succeeded. There are a couple of, um, couple of uh, occasions where it went terribly wrong and I sent something offensive, uh, but that, that mis mistake quickly got cleared up and, um, you know, people, people laugh and, and joke about the, the, these things. Uh, uh, for, for example, the, I, I shouldn't, should I give you an example? It's slightly rude. Yeah. The, 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 the number gao, uh, can mean um, uh, the the word gao can mean um, dog, the number yeah. nine or penis. So mm. you, you kind of need to know which. But you know, <laughs> I'm sure I said penis sometimes when I meant dog. But um, you know, or, <laughs> the Chinese, you know, they 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 didn't bat an eyelid. So um, the language I, I concentrated on the on the words uh, and um, putting together sentences. Uh, the grammar is actually pretty easy. Um, rather than the tone. So if you do want to learn Chinese, I'd, I'd really recommend um, a little Berlitz guide and a, 
and a, a, a pen and paper and just write down the words as you um, as you hear them and mm. as you think you would say them um, rather than get caught up in all the the science of tones I, I think that that's uh, that takes up too much time and it's unnecessary on the on the ground in the real in the real world which is where I was uh, doing but yeah homework um, so visiting any new market doesn't have to be China uh, could be could be anywhere go there spend the time uh, travel around um, I mean when I first set up my company I, I I stayed in China for seven years without leaving mm. um, firstly because um, firstly because frankly I didn't have enough money to go anywhere else you know flights were expensive especially back to Europe it was, it was a lot of money and I was investing everything I, I could into my own business so I didn't have trips home so um, but I did have holidays and I took my vacations in China and I've traveled pretty much everywhere in that country there are some exceptions but most places yeah. I've been to and that uh, that also gave me and and my business um, a real cultural grounding which I think is very very important actually as entrepreneurs develop their businesses I think it's really important to understand the culture of the mm. place that you're, you're you're residing and really get into what makes it tick what makes the people tick I used to go and um, buy Chinese music CDs and uh, you know I, I'd go to the theater um, Chinese opera is something uh, crazy crazy stuff but um, you know pretty pretty interesting um, Chinese art artists have got a long history of um, of watercolors, going to the museums, uh, all these sorts of things. It really helped me uh, appreciate, uh, which again is important, but also understand the country that I had um, planned to make my business in. Uh, and I think that's important that um, when, you're, when you're developing a, a, a company, particularly one that's outside of your home country, that you really do immerse yourself in that country's uh, culture, history, uh, because I think eventually it pays back in your understanding of mm. how things work. And that's got to be good news for any entrepreneur that wants to make a success of their company. So, so yeah, there was that immerse yourself in um, in the country if you're working overseas. Really, really get, get to grips with that. It certainly worked for me. I think that's very important. And I think I get a sense that you are more of, I mean, you're definitely entrepreneurial, but I think maybe your personality type is even I would um, I would dare to say you're more of an explorer kind of a personality at least that's the sense that I get that you know you like exploring you like immersing yourself and and trying to learn not I, I, and I would say not everybody is like that and I think that's part of the reason you know it probably you kept on getting fired as well <laughs> but um, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah um, yeah. I definitely want to ask you more about China because, you know, China is such a, has done such a tremendous job growing in the last 20 years or so. And then, you know, now it's, it's you know, almost on the verge of becoming the world power. So I definitely want to ask you more about China. But before I go there, I know you said that there's an interesting story about the name of your company itself, Dizan Shira and Associates. Would you, would you mind sharing that story? Yeah. Uh, my my surname is is Devonshire Ellis, and um, uh, I uh, I was seconded to do some work uh, uh, in in China, uh, and um, I was to be paid in in China uh, for my previous uh, employer. So um, so I went to China, uh, and after the, set up a bank account in my name, and after the first month, my Chinese employer hadn't paid me. 
And I, I didn't really say very much because it was a bit embarrassing. And then <laughs> the second month, same thing. Third month, I hadn't got paid and I had run out of money. So I went mm. to my boss and said, look, here's my Chinese bank account, zero. <laughs> uh, where's Where's the money? Um, and uh, they they were terribly uh, embarrassed. Um, and uh, basically, the mistake had been that uh, the, the the girl in the accounts department couldn't spell my name. She'd been trying to uh, make payments to a Mr. Dizan Shira, so um, instead of Devonshire Ellis. So mm. first, and I got paid. They 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 were very apologetic and took me after dinner, and I got all my bad bad pay and everything. So it's a legitimate mistake. But I I thought that the name was actually kind of cool. Um, and as it so, I named when it came to for me to set up my own company. I named it after the spelling mistake because, you know, law firms and accounting firms they've got boring names, right? So they all name them other companies, uh, firms after themselves, and uh, they're they're all terribly boring. Whereas I thought that Dizan Shira had a nice ring about it. And mm -hmm. um, as it turns out, they they are they are real words. I didn't know this, but mm -hmm. Dizan. Um, is a, is a they're both Sanskrit words actually the mm. uh, Indian uh, some Indian origins uh, a dizan is a Tibetan uh, word it's kind of a dwelling where you'd corral your goats and sheep up in the Tibetan mountains mm. uh, in the evening to protect them from wolves and stuff that that stone structure that's a dizan uh, shira is is a type of Indian wild rice mm. um, so uh, in a in a way the company's name dizan shira kind of translated sort of as house of rice which mm. in asia is uh, is really auspicious mm. uh, and our internal company magazine is called the house of rice for that reason um so it's just as well that the those words weren't something rude uh, i but um that's the name of the that's the name of the company it um it was named after a misspelling of my surname uh and um yeah now it's quite a a, a well-known uh, brand certainly in asia we're a well-known companies so um so it worked uh i think there's other other examples um adidas or adidas he was a mm. real guy he was uh he was a hungarian olympia mm. uh, olympic uh, mm. uh, uh, runner i believe and he he named adidas which became adidas i think mm. hagendars is also a made-up name the mm. ice cream brand i don't think it means anything they came up with something that was cool uh, so it's it's possible to come up with something unique um and uh and kind of funky uh, mm. and i don't think there's any reason to be afraid of that it's certainly a lot more fun than naming a business after yourself that's a bit egotistical isn't it so desanshira yeah. rather than devonshire ellis you know come come on so desanshira <laughs> that's that's the story very very interesting very interesting so um, I want to talk a little bit about your business and the services that you offer so um you know you offer consulting services to you know, European or North American businesses that are that are that that want to invest or do business in Asia, and I think there's definitely a need for that because it, I think there's you know the way people do business in Asia, the the laws and the the you know yeah, the regulations, everything is so different. And then you also mentioned there's a, an an aspect of the cultural you know how people do business. I think that that doesn't translate very well as well. So can you share a little bit about? Um, what kind of uh, businesses you help, and what are the services that you are uh, that you your business offers? Right. Well, um, we're um, we're a hybrid professional services firm. So, what what does that mean? Um, it means that we 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 assist companies with um, 
uh, let's let's do it in order order of relevance um, with market intelligence. So if somebody wants to come to um, China or India or any of the ASEAN countries or in the Middle East where we have operations in all of these countries now, um, then uh, they might want to know what you know what what the consumer tastes are, what particular market segments are, and we have a business intelligence uh, team that does that research. I'll come on to this point a little bit later as well. So if if you want. Uh, advice or statistics on who's buying what and where the consumer trends are, then we provide that as um, and the companies can make up their own mind. Uh, we often get asked, you know, should, uh, for example, should I be setting up my factory in Gujarat in India or should it be in uh, 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 Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam or should it be in Shenzhen or in China? What are the differences? Um, and there are there are differences and they can be quite considerable. So that market intelligence, we do that. Then people uh, will often come to us for the legal assistance in setting up. Important to get that right, especially in joint ventures, uh, because joint ventures by their nature, a, lo a lot of foreign investors come thinking that uh, American law and a joint venture will, uh, will dominate. And of course, if it's in India, then Indian law is going to dominate. So you need to have that sort of background. Um, so setting up the company, getting, getting it structurally right. And there are options as to how to do this, how you want to do things, whether you want to buy and sell, whether you just want to export, uh, whether you want to manufacture, whether you want to manufacture and export or manufacture and sell onto the domestic market. All these are legally specific questions, which so working out what the uh, what is the best way forward, the best legal structure is is part of that. Then there is tax planning, um, which um, relates to. Uh, issues such as double tax treaties, and uh, which can save uh, uh, taxes, uh, reduce the tax burden, uh, free trade zones, economic zones, special economic zones, all these sorts of things can uh, can save uh, businesses uh, and uh, re reduce their um, reduce their tax liabilities. There are issues such as um, uh, sanctions in some cases or tariffs uh, in certain uh, China, for example. Um, it has encouraged industry lists, which is extensive, actually, um, where if you're in a particular industry, it encourages you. China encourages, India does the same, encourages investors to come into this sector. That can also be regionalized and that can provide significant benefits. On the other hand, there's areas where by, by perhaps uh, it's not so welcome and uh, there are tax disincentives to invest in this. The United States has also put on tariffs against Chinese products coming back to the US. So all these sorts of questions need to be answered. On top of all of that, you've got the um, the operational issues. Um, if, for example, you're selling food to China, uh, that's got to go through all the health and security checks, um, same in ASEAN and India and everywhere else. Labeling has got to be in local languages and compliant. Um, uh, so all of the business compliance issues Human resources is another one, uh, finding the right people. Uh, if, if you want particular qualifications, finding out what the local equivalent of those are. Um, language issues, um, you know, foreign investors invariably tend to speak uh, English as a common language, but not everyone in India or China or ASEAN speaks English at all. So yeah. how, to, how to deal with that. Uh, so these sorts of um, operational uh, issues. Due diligence, an ongoing process to make sure you're not being ripped off left, right and centre. Kicking the tyres to make sure that everything is working and nobody's uh, taking you for a ride. All these uh, issues. We also do, um, uh, we, we're not statutory auditors. We don't do statutory audit. The, the big four tend to take that work. We, we don't uh, do that. But we do do 
audit compliance to help them get to that stage. Hmm. So all of those issues uh, are, are what we provide as a professional services firm. Um, and that's uh, that's right from very small startups. Um, you know, 32 years ago, um, uh, some, some of the people that came through our door that were just starting up a business are now billionaires. Uh, hmm. So, you know, we've, uh, we've, we've helped a lot of companies grow and develop. Um, so that's a professional services firm. I, I also have another business uh, called Asia Breathing, asiabreathing.com, which is a, a publications company. It's a separate company. We have about 20 million readers for that. Uh, and that does the same thing. It provides all the boring legal, regulatory and other issues that businesses need to know to uh, to to operate in a, in a country and uh, asia breathing which includes india breathing china breathing asian breathing vietnam breathing uh, and mm. all these other different ones middle east breathing uh, that that focuses on all those um, fairly dry topics uh, but the 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 genius behind it if you like is that as a as as a professional firm we make that we make that pretty much available for free mm. so it's our marketing uh, and it's but it's also a, a Asia breathing. What we do there is a real educational tool. Um, I think I must have written hundreds of university degrees of people out there over the years on the content of what we put out. Mm. Uh, but um, yeah, so that's that's also impressive. So the publishing company supports the marketing for the firm, which is a fairly unique concept. Actually, a lot of businesses have problems with how to market themselves. And we were able to solve that, and we control our own marketing as well, which is uh, which is a good thing. Uh, we can direct things in particular ways, uh, e-commerce, and I've got a whole team doing that. And uh, you know how how we originally started was was putting out um, leaflets, you know, printed off a photocopier, uh, uh, you know, all, all those yeah, over twenty twenty five years ago. Now yeah. everything's digital. Um, and we've got a whole team of people who frankly, whose jobs and careers didn't exist when I set up the firm. Mm. Um, so they, they look after all the e-commerce, e the, uh, the social networking, uh, the, um, the optimization, search engine optimization, all of those things are new jobs and new careers which have come into being since I started the firm. But we're very active in it. And I think there, there's also a lesson there because when, when you get to be a bit of an old fart like me at 63, Mm. You, you don't really want to be in charge of um, everything. You know, I, I may have a vision for the company, but uh, it, I think a common mistake is for um, self-made business people who set up their own company to want to be involved in everything. And frankly, the, the, the speed of technology uh, and what have you overtakes you. Uh, so there's no point uh, when you get older and even within your own company, you have to be able to step aside and let somebody younger, more savvy, uh, more in tune with what's going on, take on those roles. Because if you don't do that, you'll be stuck as an old mindset business. And I I think one of the smart things I did was to remove myself from decision-making processes of um, of things such as social media and, and SEO works and the whole online industry is stepping completely away from that and getting people in that did understand it uh, and uh, did know what they were doing instead of me pretending as a boss that I knew everything, where, whereas, of course, that's not true. So I, I think there's a lesson there for, for, for managers, particularly those that have had a long career within their own firms, that you've got to be able to let go uh, and get in smarter, younger professionals to take on the, uh, uh, the, the, the new technologies which are coming into and shaping businesses today.
I think that's very important, you know, to be able to delegate and and because nobody can know everything. And I think as you're growing, especially becoming bigger, uh, I think that's that's a key skill. Um, I'm very curious yeah. to know, do you have, um, you know, you've been in Asia for 30 plus years now. Um, what trends, what um, in, in your own practice, in your own business, what kind of things uh, you see do you see a lot of businesses from north america europe coming to asia now uh, probably they, they do come to asia for manufacturing you know getting products manufactured but are they also coming to asia to sell their own products as well um or they're yeah. coming there to invest it, like it, what what are the big trends what are the big things that you see within your own client base well i i <laughs> Well, first of all, what what gets reported in the um, in in the global media, um, particularly the Western media, is often um, is often not really correct. Um, th there's a lot of doom and gloom stories about China, for example, uh, and um, uh, you know it's it's difficult to do business there, and uh, China is so uh, the, the economy is uh, is stalling. You know, economies always go up and down. And sometimes politicians like to point fingers at other countries and say, look, those guys are doing really badly to um, to cover up the fact that their own economies are actually going down the toilet. And mm. I think Europe, which is having a, a, a pretty rough time, uh, mm. the United States economy is not brilliant. Um, you know, but the Chinese economy and the Western media are all saying, oh, it's terrible. Actually, it's got GDP growth rate of about five and a half percent. And the U.S. is doing two percent. So. You know, don't don't always pay attention to the um, to the foreign, the international media when it comes to these uh, uh, countries. Uh, we're we're busier. You know, we we help foreign investors come into Asia. Now, China's the one that people like to talk about because it's the largest, uh, one of the largest economies. Uh, but um, we're busier in terms of handling foreign investors into China than we've ever been. Hmm. Uh, uh, so you know, make no bones about it. Uh, but there are there are what has changed is is what they do. So, you know, for example, uh, I, I remember people, American businessmen coming over to China and saying, oh, it's, a, it's a country of a billion consumers. We can sell all this U.S. made stuff to China. Uh, mm. And that, that was a pretty naive approach. Mm. Uh, and uh, of course, so they, they were manufacturing um, to, to, to gain access to the China market. I'll come on to this point in a second. But they are also manufacturing, frankly, to take advantage of China's cheap labor. Mm. Um, so they were manufacturing in China because it was more cost effective to do it there and then export it back to the United States uh, instead of making it in, uh, in, in the U.S. So um, this started off with auto components, big business. So you had all the big brands, Ford and GM, um, uh, and it's an American car, right? Mm. But actually, it's full of Chinese made components. Mm. Um, so that... Um, that started, uh, and then uh, ultimately, uh, the Chinese components got so big, it started damaging the American industry. So that's when they started putting tariffs and to, to prevent that happening and to, to encourage uh, American um, export manufacturers to move their factories outside of China. Uh, mm. And they did that by putting up the tariff, the import rates in the States for Chinese goods that they wanted to not allow China to have such a large share of that. So those companies started to relocate to China plus one, uh, Vietnam, China plus two, which includes uh, India plus three, some of the ASEAN countries, um, Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia. So that started to happen. 
But China is still a huge consumer market. And over the 30 odd years I've been there, it's um, it's really come up from a country whereby um, everyone used to uh, drive around in bicycles. So now they're um, now they're manufacturing the iPhone 5 and uh, they've got electric vehicles. Their EV market is amongst the most sophisticated in the world. Hmm. Um, Tesla models are made in Shanghai. You know, my staff in Shanghai office, uh, they, they drive, they buy Tesla cars. Um, so just on that, that's changing the way which buildings are constructed, because when you're putting in new office blocks, uh, the garage parking downstairs as people drive to work, they've got to have EV chargers in them so that people can charge their cars while they're sitting at the desk and working. So it's even changing how um, the construction industry works in China. Um, so all of these things have happened. Now, the Chinese consumer market, it's got a total population of about 1.3 billion, mm. about, um, about 400 million of those, a population larger than the entire United States mm. is now to uh, middle class standards. Uh, mm. And the uh, the CPC, the Chinese um, Communist Party uh, Secretariat, they um, they've got plans to um, to basically uh, more than double that over the next uh, 20, 25 years. So uh, that means that uh, somewhere in the region of about 2040, there should be uh, around about 900 million Chinese consumers in China to middle class standards. Mm. Now, that, frankly, is a fantastic opportunity to make stuff and sell to the Chinese com- uh, consumers mm. and also make in your own country, uh, mm. the States, Europe, wherever you are, uh, do your research, do your market um, intelligence and see what the Chinese want to buy. Um, mm. The tastes are changing. I, rem- mm. I remember the, the Chinese um, Chinese dinners and um, the alcohol which would be consumed would be um, expensive cognacs, um, but within 10 years they were drinking wines. Uh, mm. So, you know, the, the consumer tastes are changing. What the Chinese actually consume, both on a technological perspective and also from a cultural perspective, are changing. Um, the Chinese population is also at the same time aging. Mm. Its um, middle class population is getting more savvy. They aspire to things that we have in the West. So issues such as uh, elderly health care, growth market in China, wellness, growth market in China, mm. um, other aspects such as uh, adventure tourism, um, uh, camping out, these sorts of things, which used to be looked down on, are now it's going to have big deals in China. Cosmetic surgery, uh, all these sorts of things, uh, particularly uh, healthcare, is a, is a major growth industry. Um, education, there's um, uh, you, you know f- food supplements for kids. Uh, all these sorts of things are a healthier lifestyle. Uh, that's all starting to take a, a hold in China. So when you look at where China is, you know, a middle class of about 400 million, they're going to owe more than the plans are for them to double that by 2040. So Mm. there's the opportunity. Um, uh, The, um, you know, you've got 900 million Chinese that want to buy stuff. Mm. Um, And uh, I think that's a fantastic uh, opportunity. And really, instead instead of just reading the daily newspapers and saying the Chinese economy is stuttering and it's not doing so great, you've got to look to the, the future, what the demographics tell us. And the Chinese study this scientifically. And uh, th- those are the answers. This is real. So mm. they're the opportunities. Um, and it's not just China. It's Asia overall. It includes India. The Indian growth demographics are also extraordinary. India's also got a significant middle class, which is going to develop, as has uh, ASEAN. 
So, um, so all of the Asian markets, uh, I think Asia overtook the uh, the West in terms of absolute wealth um, just about 18 months ago. There's more money now in the East than there is in the West. So that's the opportunity. Uh, and um, people should really be looking at that. I mean, that's, I think uh, overall, it's a great uh, positive story. It almost seems like, you know, uh, the world population slowly is coming out of poverty and uh, quality of life of everybody is kind of increasing. Um, but that may also mean that in the future, you know, the, the reason why companies used to go to China for manufacturing, especially because the labor cost was low, was slowly, you know, that that will start to go away because people, you know, as they're coming into middle class, they would want higher pay. They would not settle for those, you know, poor uh, factory jobs exactly. and so forth. Exactly. So where where is that going? So we've we're, we've discussed China, India, and Asia as being uh, growing middle class populations, but where can you manufacture on an inexpensive uh, basis um, uh, and and compete and bring that so to bring the price levels down? Uh, well, there are still parts of Asia which are which are relatively un, undeveloped, um, uh, including parts of India. Still got a lot of growth to go through. Pakistan, other areas of uh, other areas of uh, uh, Asia. But also I, I see, um, you know, Africa is starting to make um, some real splashes. There's already uh, some movement of uh, Asian manufacturing going to African nations. And I think that's going to be uh, the, the story from about, uh, well, starting today, actually. I think if I had my career now, I'd probably head over to Nairobi. Um, uh, but that's for somebody else to do. Um, <laughs> but uh, I think the, 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 the low cost, manufacturing base that's going to be very much in africa um the african continental free trade agreement which reduces tariffs on uh, uh, on on a pan continental basis has come into effect and will continue to be effective and increasingly so over the coming years um african infrastructure is improving again with the help of china's belt and road uh, uh, initiative um, so that continent, I think, is where we, we, the world is going to be looking towards its um, its low cost manufacturing to help mm -hmm. keep those productive production costs down. Uh, whereas the uh, the consumer market growth is going to be in uh, in in Asia. So that's that's the balance. Uh, and mm -hmm. to some extent, I think the the um, uh, production uh, also in Latin America. Uh, is also a, a low-cost country, although I think it's also poised for fairly rapid growth. Uh, the economies of uh, Brazil and Argentina, once they sort themselves out, I think are going to be very, very promising. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I almost think that in the next, you know, people today kind of project or try, try to um, uh, predict what the future is going to look like, you know, 20, 30, 50 years down the road. And, you know, everybody is in the in the West is kind of scared that China is overtaking the West and, you know, China is the next superpower and things like that. But I think the future may look very, very different that nobody has kind of uh, imagined because, number one, I think the biggest thing is the uh, birth rate is going down. So who knows, what, you know, what impact that's going to have. And then AI you know, advent of AI. So it's it's kind of a, you know, future maybe may look very different and, and you know, maybe um, something that nobody has kind of imagined. Like, do you ever think about um, what all these other trends that are kind of in the periphery, you know, low birth rate, people are not, you know, staying married, 
you know, the advent of AI and what what can be done with that, you know, what impact is go that going to have um, on the world? Well, I, I, yeah, I'm. That's that's kind of a little bit out of my league. But in terms of what I see, uh, I think you're right that the. I think that the one of the problems of the early, of uh, the end of the last century, uh, from the 1970s through the 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s, that the um, the, the rise of Islamic fundamentalism and the violence that that um, that, that uh, promised, I think that that's largely been um, uh, dealt with. There are still pockets of um, uh, of this, but I think on the whole, I think the the, the Muslim world has come together. And has been able to um, uh, uh, manage its way out of out of this problem. Uh, the radicalization is um, is still a, is still an issue, but it's the lid I think has been put on top of that. And I think mm. countries are very serious about um, about keeping it that way. Um, Saudi Arabia is a is a major player. Uh, it's often described as being um, uh, uh, quite a harsh regime. But if you look at the Saudi Vision 2030, that's an extraordinary document of how the country is going to open up um, uh, and liberalise. And the signs are that that's already happening. Mm. Uh, so I, I think that a, a liberalisation of um, is, Islamic attitudes uh, is, uh, is, is coming. Uh, they, they, they tend to have more children. So uh, the, the integration of the Islamic world into the West, which is going to be bumpy, that is already occurring. I, I see that as um, uh, as a as a as a positive thing. You know, it's, it, we should be living in a global community, and there's no reason for people to be picking fights just because of religions or, or color. And I think right. that there are um, there are signs that we're actually getting towards that um, uh, that uh, ethnic uh, uh, utopia to some degree. There will always be people who want to stir up hatred, but I think we are moving in terms of religion and uh, race to. Uh, to uh, to a more equal and just society, that's that's got to be good. Um, so populations are, are rapidly increasing in uh, in the Muslim world uh, and uh, also in Africa. So um, you know that is going to have an impact, uh, and uh, quite how that uh, works out, um, uh, I guess we'll see in 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 the West more Muslims and um, Africans, and that's got to be that's got to be a, a, a great uh, thing. Uh, let let's go for this um, global uh, community. So hopefully that is what's going to going to happen, uh, and the uh, the bigotry uh, is going to uh, is going to start to be overcome or is being overcome. I I, I can see that. Mm. Uh, so hopefully this uh, we're looking towards a, a more peaceful uh, and just society, global society. For sure. Can you briefly talk about your management style? I mean, you have. Um, your business has offices in, you said, 40 plus uh, uh, locations, and it seems like it's a distributed team. How do you keep uh, a tab on everything? I know you mentioned, you know, you are great at delegation, so you're uh, having other people manage parts of your business. Um, how much time do you spend every day now, uh, kind of the day-to-day -day management of your business versus you are kind of more like, uh, looking at the high level numbers and and really having your team do most of the management activities well i, I would describe myself as a uh, an autocratic uh, or or a, a, a benign dictator um, okay. although that's uh, that's 
this this is how it works. So I'm I'm the chairman of the company. I'm not the managing uh, partner or managing director, but I'm also the uh, the largest uh, shareholder. Hmm. Um, now I think the way that, uh, that that the way I've been able to make it work for me is that we have a very small board. Um, there's just uh, four of us, including me, uh, and um, uh, that means that if decisions are are taken, only four people are involved. Uh, we've all worked together for many years, um, uh, over 20 or up to 20, between 20 to 25 years, these people have worked with me. So we have a very strong uh, relationship. So the when it comes to making decisions or budgeting or discussing uh, the business direction, we tend to we tend to agree. Uh, and on the rare occasions when that uh, when when that isn't the case, um, uh, usually that means that we haven't understood the, the core issue of whatever the subject is. So we have to go away again and think about it and do a bit more research and then bring it back to board and then make a decision. And then if um, if we can't agree, then then I will step in and I'll make a call. Um, so you know that that's how it works in terms of um, in terms of a core decision making. So keeping your board small, I, I cannot imagine uh, having a board of directors of 30, 40 people would be like you know cats in a box. Goodness me, uh, it'd be appalling. So four people um, with um, with me as the uh, Ubermeister. Um, now about apart from that, uh, we're in we're in many different countries. We're a multinational business and we give people responsibilities so they have to um, we have country managers in place uh, and they have to perform uh, um, and we choose uh, Asia is, is is if you like a young person's country it's very dynamic you need to have a lot of energy so we uh, we bring in people that are, are quite young and um, if they've got the right attributes and we we trust them then we will promote them uh, and um we have uh, we have people in their early thirties that are at uh, are at director level, um, running operations. We support them, uh, and uh, you know generally that uh, if that pretty well almost always that works out well. The only problem we have is is that as a smaller firm, is that uh, the bigger firms steal our staff. Stop it, <laughs> big firms. Uh, so we have a lot of headhunters looking at our staff, and um, that annoys me. But um, yeah, so but we have to constantly recruit and train up and give them a lot of love. We're, um, I think there's two ways essentially to answer your question, perhaps in a in a, a little bit more esoteric manner. Is there's two ways to manage your business. You can do it out of fear and mm. insist to people, come on to work on time. You're late again. If it happens again, and do all this terrible stuff, and you know, don't spend money on the offices and you know, just beat up people and be constantly on their backs. You can make a business like that. You can run the company on fear. But I think when you when you think of business, it's it's good to look at what the word company actually means. And it means, you know, a group of people with a common objective working together to achieve that. And I think the easiest way to do that is to run a company on love. Uh, so, you know, be nice to your, to your staff. If somebody comes in late, What's the underlying reason? And often you find that they may have a personal problem. Um, their, their mother is sick or their kid's sick or there's some other issue. Uh, then unless you sit down and say, look, you've come in late a few times, you know, you, you can't continue to do that. because It's unfair to the other stuff. But what's the problem? Uh, and uh, being open and finding out what the problems are with staff, 
um, uh, is, is a good way uh, of, um, of dealing with it. So run the company on love, invest in the staff, invest in the offices. We have artwork in, in, in our offices. We have cool furniture. Uh, we've got paintings all over the place. We've got lots and lots of plants. It's green. It's a nice environment. People actually enjoy coming to work in our offices every month. All of our offices, and there's 40 plus of them, we have a, a cake time, whereas that particular office celebrates birthdays, uh, um, other other things, um, staff getting married, uh, all sorts of things. Uh, being Doing a lot of tax and accounting work, about 70 percent of our staff are um are women and uh you know mm. they're pretty attractive so they're always getting pregnant so about 10 percent <laughs> of my staff any one time are, are pregnant wow. so we have a lot of baby showers and things like that and you know there's maternity leave but um you know when when new mothers um come into the office with their new baby that's that's a fantastic thing you know it's mm. uh, it's decent share of the second generation. So all of these things, you know, run the company on love, make them feel like a, a part of a team. We we pay them to go on motivational trips with all of the offices. Also, all of them all go on an annual trip once a year. My India office in um, in March, um, uh, they went to Shimla up in the uh, Indian Himalaya. I, I was on that trip and it was, I tell you what, it's brilliant. Absolutely fantastic, breathtaking. So the company pays for that sort of thing and it helps with team building and we give them a break and, you know, it brings people closer together and it really makes the company, you know, you have company. So, um, and if um, if you can get on with your employees and foster that uh, corporate environment, then that becomes part of the company DNA. And it's very, very important. We have to compete with, um, uh, with people wanting to offer more salary than we can afford to pay our staff and, uh, and with bigger names than we are. Uh, but, you know, we, we also have quite a surprising a lot of loyalty. Not everybody will leave our company just to go to one of the big four mm. uh, at, a, at a, you know, 25, 30% more. Sometimes they prefer to stay with us where yeah. they know they've got a good, secure job and that the working environment is um, is better and more healthy. Uh, so um, so that's how we deal with it. Run, run your businesses on love, you know, yeah. please. Yeah, best. definitely. Yeah, I think people, people, a lot of people would stay in a company because the culture is great, even if the pay is not, uh, you know, uh, is a little bit less, I think. Uh, now we're going to move on to our rapid fire segment. In this segment, I'm going to ask you a few quick questions and you have to answer them maybe in a, a couple of words or a sentence or so. All right. Uh, one book recommendation for entrepreneurs or business professionals and why? I never read self-help books okay um and i don't read business, business books oh you don't okay this is uh, <laughs> um this is the moonstone legacy by uh diana de gunsberg friend of mine and uh current reading jim zimmerman james zimmerman the peking express oh, wow. i don't read business books i i i think it's better to not be business 200 percent of the time you need freedom Read a good novel, read something else, you know, relax. That helps you unwind from business, gets your mind free and uh, allows you to be creative. So forget about reading self-help or business books written by somebody else. You know, you already know what you're doing, uh, yeah. I think is the message. And relax, listen to music, read a novel. It frees your mind up to be creative, which is an SME, an entrepreneur. Yeah. People need to be creative. So give yourself the time to do that. 
So yeah. Mo has self-help books is the answer to that question. Great advice. Um, and that, that more than two sentences. <laughs> innovative product Sorry. or idea that you currently feel excited about? Yeah, it's it's a bit more intangible, this, but um, I think the development of uh, uh, of things such as the uh, International North-South Transportation Corridor uh, and the uh, the routes um, from uh, from east to west, new routes such as the, the G20 recently proposed uh, in India, Middle East, Saudi, to Europe route. I think that's all uh, all quite interesting. These these great initiatives, including the BRI. I know that gets slagged off in the international media, but anything that actually connects communities, um, you know, businessmen. I do, although you know, get involved in the legal and tax aspects. But we're all really about business and trade. So I'm I'm interested in most supply chain developments, uh, and I think with um, the, the the aspects of global warming, I think there are opportunities within that. Um, although some of the, the, the effects of, of that have also got to be measured. So I think that, um, yeah, the transportation corridors, infrastructure developments were kind of what turned me on. Um, so Okay. Um, I know you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, uh, doing other things for creativity, but do you have any other uh, business or productivity tool or software that you would recommend or a productivity tip? No, um, frankly, uh, and the reason is uh, we discussed it earlier. Uh, I'm an old fart, uh, and I don't understand any of those things. When I set up my business, uh, you know, we we would send contracts via fax, um, so I certainly didn't have anything like that. So mm -hmm. when it comes to apps and all that kind of stuff, um, you know, and SEO and all that software. I've got an entire IT department that do that, and they're much smarter than me. So um, maybe you should ask them that question, or, or I'll get one. Yeah, I to be one of those guys. They can answer that. I'm 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 the old fart that doesn't know how to do anything, and uh, I still only really use my fantastic iPhone as a phone. You know, a bit boring, really. You know, mm -hmm. retarded. Let all the smart people do all that kind of stuff. What the only app I'd recommend is I like the night sky. Um, that's mm. uh, an app that shows you all the stars and planets. That's cool, but that's not business business related. But it does, you know, get me out in the in the garden in the evening and marvel at the the greater universe. So that's that's the answer. I'm not very, the right really. guy to answer, it and I'm too old. And yeah, no, I, I think that's a... if you don't understand it, somebody else could do it. No, night night sky is good. It's uh, yeah, it, it, you know, it helps you relax, and that's great. Yeah. Um, a peer entrepreneur or business person whom you look up to or someone who inspires you? A lot of people inspire me. Um, uh, and uh, I, I think as I've um, got older, the, the, the people that inspire me, I think, are, are, are the people that get involved with um, charities uh, and uh, have got a good life balance. Um, there's, there's a lot of bigotry out there. A, a lot of people are really only interested in money and that's that's their only um the only thing they're really concerned about i think that's shallow and a waste of a life frankly so mm -hmm. people that uh, inspire me are um uh, i i get involved with people and and in in charity there's charity functions and I, th I think that that devoting part of your life to the service of uh, of others is, is is a really rewarding uh thing so everyone that's that's properly in, involved with that just on the charity aspect, by, by the way, um, I tend to pick uh, uh, charities who where the bulk of the money which um, 
with send is 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 used on on the ground i'm i'm not into supporting charities where 90% of that money goes into their operating costs uh, i like to get involved on the ground so people that do that kind of stuff very diverse charities um, save the children uh, building uh, hospitals in africa uh, uh, protection of tibetan monuments um, uh, music or new new composers i get involved in a lot of things so those people people are involved with that they they inspire me i tend not to hang out actually with other businessmen because uh, all they kind of want to do is compete and i've got this car and you've got that car and i've got this and i've got that and uh, frankly i mean come on you know so uh, i i prefer to have conversations with more uh, interesting people that have got a diverse set of um uh, background that those are the sorts of people who i get inspired by um not the people who um carp on about their own success i i know a guy uh in estonia and he's got 21 ferraris why you know <laughs> crazy so you know that's not inspiring so the person that's spending their time uh digging wells in africa that's inspiring yeah for sure final question uh best business advice you ever received or you would give to entrepreneurs i know you get you gave a lot of great advice but is there anything any last parting word any big uh advice that you would want to share with entrepreneurs i think i've got two um okay one one is if you, if you think it's right it probably is so don't listen to anyone else if you think you're right that's all that matters don't be put mm. off there's plenty of people out there you can't do this you can't do that mm. shut up you know mm -hmm. if you think you're right go for it um don't be afraid of failing um um actually i'm going to give you three pieces of advice if if you mm. fail and i failed many times so we worked hard to get a particular project in uh, mm. and somebody else beat us what i used to do um and still sometimes do is take our staff to um uh, out for dinner um and we'd uh, we'd have a nice time and uh, we'd celebrate the failure uh, but during that and we'd have some drinks and we'd we'd look at the we'd discuss the whole thing to try and work out what we could have done better but do it mm. in nice um a nice environment not be mm. upset or um but do it so okay we lost it but we were in the game we nearly won we came second we didn't get the project um we didn't get the client but um let's have a nice dinner because we can learn something from that experience so i think celebrating your failures is is a very productive way of analyzing what you could have done better and sometimes there were things which um uh, I didn't realize we're wrong you, you know I remember we um uh, at one point we had a pretty pretty terrible website and uh, you know that was deemed to be a factor in the, the, how the company presented itself was mm. was a factor in determining that the business went to a, a competing firm rather than us so mm. celebrate your failures and um, and discuss them and I think the third piece of advice which is difficult to do but um, and requires patience is don't borrow money if you can if you can keep the banks out of your business it's mm. called bulkhead financing don't let them in um try and do as much as you can yourself uh and um if that means going without a car um i when i first started my business one of the first things i wanted to do was get a nice car mm. but um i couldn't really afford to have the car that i wanted and competitors came and went and they bought themselves nice cars and what have you and 32 years later i still don't have a car <laughs> I don't have a secretary either. 
So, um, you know, do as much as you can yourself. You you can do without. Don't borrow money. As soon as you do, somebody else is involved in your business and uh, they they have an impact on that. Mm. Uh, They can make your business do things that you don't want them to do. So try and keep people out of your business. Bulkhead financing. Do work as hard as you can. Do as much as you can. And always be prepared to look at your competitors, work out the, how you can do better than they can. What mm. does your competitors do? Look at them. How can I do better? Um, you know, I once rang up a competitor at five o'clock in the afternoon and the phone just just to see what would happen. And mm. the phone just rang and rang and rang and rang and rang. You know, there was mm. no answer phone. There was no nothing else. And I thought, you know, I'm going to stay here in my office until six o'clock and mm. do this and i also bought an answer phone machine for when i had to go home and all these kinds of stuff so, so little things like that but definitely don't borrow any money um bulkhead financing it means it takes a longer period uh, to mm. build up the cash flow strength so before you can start to take dividends out but you know when when it's your own money you can also make decisions uh, faster it makes you more flexible um you know we decided um to to set up an office uh, in the middle east in dubai Mm. um uh last year and in six months we had it mm. you know i think if i'd been in an mnc mm. that would have been a, a long drawn out decision but we we there were just four of us making that capital decision and we we went and actioned it and now that office is um 18 months later is uh is is, is turning over it will reach it will we'll have a return on that investment in in about another 18 months which is very mm. fast Part of the reason for that is because we didn't borrow any money. We don't have to go to a bank and say, we don't want to do this. Can you give us something? It's our own money. And um, we are flexible and able to take take uh, take control of our destiny. So those are the issues. Um, if you think it's right, do it. Mm. Um, celebrate your failures because they will be. Learn from them and uh, try and keep other people out of your business. And that's it. Those are, those are yeah those are those are really really great advice i think in general so for sure thank you thank you so much uh, chris for sharing those and um i'm going to wrap up the interview now we're over time and so i want to thank you again chris for uh, for your time uh, joining us today from sri lanka i know it's a late night probably there <laughs> um and thanks for sharing your very inspiring story and um and uh, sharing all the business advice and learnings for for from you know last 30 years plus of your business okay. uh, experience so thank you so much again well, for you're joining welcome. the trip talks and really appreciate you and, and wish you all the very best yeah. you're welcome if people want to reach out they can uh, it's easy to find me so i'm happy to answer any questions people may have and as for the time it's 6 30 here in the evening and um, okay. i'm going to go and cook myself some dinner so Thank you for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much. Really appreciate it.